Welcome to Shakti's podcast. At Shakti Health and Wellness Center, we practice medicine which deeply values the importance of relationship between doctor and patient. Our integrative medicine approach focuses on the whole person, is informed by evidence-based medicine, and makes use of integrative therapies to help you reach your optimal health and healing. We will stress the importance of prevention of illness as well as treating symptoms. In our podcast, we'll be covering topics in health, wellness, and fitness. Our goals are to empower you with knowledge to take charge of your health and live a healthier lifestyle. Our second podcast in the series of nutrition is When Healthy Isn't Healthy for Me. And today I have my guest, Cheryl McKee, who is a functional nutritionist, health coach, and the owner of Nourishing Abundance in Frederick, Maryland, which is above the tasting room. Her motto is love your food, love your life. Welcome, Cheryl. And I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Our bodies have an intuition to tell us what's right for us. But sometimes, you know, what is really healthy for someone doesn't feel healthy for you. Uh, I have a lot of patients who come in and try to eat based on healthy principles of fiber. But if they have bacterial overgrowth, there are large amounts of inflammation or not enough acid in the gut there, that food makes them bloat, cause pain, and even alter their bowel movements. And some people who have leaky gut can have reactions to think o- things that they eat often, like blueberries and broccoli. So how can you navigate this? And folks struggle with diabetes, have problems learning you know, not to eat fruits, and some people on Coumadin can't eat vitamin K foods. And you know, there's a lot of kind of mixed messages out there. And mm-hmm. what I want to talk about is how to use your body signaling to help you understand which foods are good for you. So, um, you know, sometimes... Things come up when we eat too quickly, when we eat emotionally, if we don't chew, if we eat too quickly. So these are the things I want to talk about today. Yeah. Actually, these are really great because I say to people all the time, it doesn't matter if you're eating the most pristine diet, if the way that you're eating it is wrong, then you're not going to use those nutrients the way that you should. So we spend a lot of times, you know, people will say they'll call and set up an appointment they'll come in and they want to know if I'm going to give them a list of foods to eat when they leave and I'm like not usually to start Um, what we're going to do is some foundational work to make sure that you're eating properly and so that we can understand how things are being used in your body because it varies for everybody so one of the biggest things is that um, as a society we tend to eat in a hurry or while we're doing other things we're checking email we're driving down the road uh, we're running kids somewhere we're in a big hurry to get into the car in the morning, whatever. And so we're shoving food down our face, and we're not even aware of what we're shoving down in our face. <laughs> and so we actually take some time to start learning to sit for a few minutes, even if you only have five minutes, and actually use your senses to inform your body of what to do with the food that you're putting into your mouth. So what do I mean by that? Um, if we think back to when we were first on Earth, we didn't have McDonald's. We didn't even have a kitchen, right? So we had to use our senses to find food, to determine if it was good for us, um, you know, to even hear it because, you know, we might be hunting for it and it might be hunting for us. So all of our senses play a role in how well we digest. So it's really important to walk away from distractions like email whatever, to actually stop and look at our food, to notice what it looks like, to touch it, to um, get it into our mouth and actually chew it. There's all kinds of receptors on our tongue 
that basically sense, whether it's sweet, whether it's savory, whether it's acidic, whether it's salty, that kind of thing. And all of those receptors in those taste patterns actually inform the rest of the body what to do with the food that's in our mouth. So for example, sweet things tell the pancreas to release insulin so that it can open up cells and put that sugar into the cell for energy. Bitter things actually tell the liver to upregulate a little bit because in the wild, bitter things are um, tend to be poisonous. And so the liver is a good detoxifying organ and if you eat something bitter, it says ramp up detoxification, get that out of me. So it's really important. The other big thing is that um, all of these receptors that are on our tongue, um, if you're not actually chewing on both sides of your mouth, then you're not innervating them. We tend to chew on one side, whatever our dominant side is. And what happens actually is that in addition to not getting food across the surface area of the tongue so that all of those sensors get innervated, we're winding up tightening up the muscles on one side of our face and in that side of the neck, and that creates stress and tension. But the other side of our face and neck is really not very toned at all because we're not using it. And so we wind up with a lot of problems like TMJ or headaches and that kind of thing. And certainly if you have a bad headache, you're not going to digest your food very well, right? So I just think it's really important to walk away from distractions, take a few minutes, sit down with your food, notice it, take your time to chew it, make sure that you're actually aware that you're even eating (laughs) and let your body do the work that it's designed to do. That sounds great. I think the bonus that you get from mindful eating is that the food actually tastes a lot better. So when you actually utilize all your senses, the same food can have an amazing new experience for you. So uh, the other thing that I always talk about with my patients is uh, journaling, and if you could comment on what value that is. Yeah, so... Journaling is, and that's one of the first things that we do often whenever you come in, um, is I have this one-page journal, and it basically asks you to record what you would eat, how you felt before you ate, how you felt after you ate, whether or not you went to the bathroom that day, how well you slept, did you do any exercise, did you get enough water, um, how are you emotionally, physically, all of these kinds of things. And the beauty of that is that... Um, We all digest food differently, and you made a comment earlier about not having enough stomach acid or having a bacterial overgrowth or whatever, all of these different things that play a role in whether or not we can actually break down our food efficiently. Whenever you start to track it and compare how you feel and how well you function physiologically, like with sleep and going to the bathroom and those kinds of things, you can begin to see trends. And, you know, the the beauty of that is that not only do you see those trends for you, but we begin to pick up little things like every time I eat cheese, two hours later I'm in the bathroom. Or sometimes it's two days later after I eat cheese that I start getting pins and needles in my feet or my hands start getting cold or I get a headache, you know, little things like that. So we can see these patterns and it really helps inform us how your body is using food. I think it's also uh, interesting what uh, gives us cues to eat. Uh, for example, why did we eat that mm. 
you know, yeah. pumpkin muffin uh, at eight o'clock at night when you weren't even hungry? Was it because you were tired and you right. had to stay up another two hours to help your kid do homework? That was me last night, by the way. <laughs> um, but it's usually atypical things that will start to create patterns and you will see that you will have these triggers. And if you can t- control your triggers, you know, that's a yeah. great way to avoid some of the foods. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that I think helps pick up food sensitivities is when people are using their heart rate monitors. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, using an elevated pulse when your pulse goes up significant amounts uh, can sometimes let you know that there's a stressor coming into the body. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice pattern also to follow. You want to mention something about food sensitivities, Cheryl? Um, yeah, so you're right about those um, heart rate monitors going up. And so that kind of leads us back to stress, right? So two quick things. One, I didn't say that on that journal that I have people do, I asked them what was their reason for eating. Was it true cellular hunger where their body actually needed food or was it emotional hunger? Was it uh, what I call mental hunger where it's 11 o'clock and I know that lunchtime is at 11.30 so whether I'm hungry or not I need to eat because it's time to eat. Um, those kinds of things and helps us to kind of or sometimes maybe I've just finished eating and I walk past a bakery and I smell things wafting out of there and all of a sudden my nose picks up and I'm ready to eat again, even though I wasn't hungry at all. Um, and that gets us back to how the senses are used. So it's really important to notice those things, and I love the journaling for that. Um, but the other big thing is that stress plays a huge role. Um, and I'll simplify this. So the role of stress is that it's to get us away from something that's going to harm us. So we should, uh, in the normal world, you know, stress should pump up, should get us away from what's trying to harm us, and it should come down. And while we're running from something that's trying to harm us, it's probably not a good time to stop and have a snack or to go to the bathroom, to take a nap, to procreate, any of those things. So those systems are kind of turned off. So that's another reason for stepping away and actually uh, relaxing while you eat your food. But what you brought up about the heart rate monitor going up is that we think of stress as primarily emotional stress, but it's actually physiological stress too. And so whenever you eat something that your body overreacts to or doesn't handle properly, that in and of itself generates a physiological stress. That's what you're seeing on that heart rate monitor. It's my body trying to figure out what to do with this thing that it thinks is trying to harm me. So there's all of these little symptoms that our body will give us, the heart rate going up, our tingling, our headaches, our digestive issues, you know, being really tired, whatever. So those are really important cues to pay attention to. Yeah, we spoke a lot about the uh, autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic in an earlier podcast uh, on stress. But just to recap, you know, we have the autonomic system, which is controls our stress response. And when the we have basically the sympathetic, which is your uh, fight or flight, which is the one that goes up when your heart rate goes mm-hmm. up, your blood pressure goes up. But what that does is it shuts down your parasympathetic, which is the balancer, which is rest and digest. Yeah. So whenever you work on, whenever your heart rate and your stress response is up, your rest and digest is, is inhibited, which causes poor digestion, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about the system being together is that when you work on rest, you can help yourself digest. Absolutely. And when you work on digestion, you help yourself rest. Mm-hmm. So that's something to always come back to. And pretty much 80% of what we do at Shakti is to work on the parasympathetic system and help people to 
restore their battery, recharge their battery so that they can heal from their um, sympathetic overdrives that they're in. Yeah. Um, can I stop you for a second? So probably 80%, if not more, of what I work on with people the is same. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. There's some, some, some similar foundational principles mm-hmm. that everybody deals with. Um, the other big area that I find really challenging for uh, patients with diabetes is to talk about fruits for them because mm-hmm. fruits turn into sugar, and even though they're healthy, it's always a dilemma on which fruits, how many fruits, what should we look for in terms of minimizing fruits. So if you could comment on that. Sure. So uh, for diabetics, one of our first goal is to get their blood sugar balanced. And if it's way out of whack, I'm going to actually ask them to avoid fruits and starchy vegetables for a bit of time until we can give their pancreas a break and their liver and all the other helpful organs for managing blood sugar so that they can actually have enough fuel to to deal with it once they're eating it. But the other thing is that if you're going to have fruit and you're able, then I always say look for the fruits that have a lot of edible skin. So berries happen to be a great example of that because they're small on, you know, they're small, so they have a ton of skin compared to the stuff that's inside. Plus they have seeds and those seeds contain fiber, which helps slow down that sugar spike. So they're an excellent source. Apples, pears, those kinds of things with edible skin, also great. Um, Things that have edible membranes like oranges, another great uh, option because that membrane has a lot of fiber in it, which will also slow that sugar spike. But if you are diabetic or you are pre-diabetic or you just even notice that your stress is messing with the way that you're handling sugar and no one's diagnosed you yet, I still think it's really, really important to pair fruits and starchy vegetables, all of that converts to sugar in the body, with some protein and a little bit of good fat. Fruits only take half hour to about an hour to digest. Proteins and fats take a lot longer. And so what happens is they slow that breakdown. They kind of all get caught up together, and it keeps the sugar spike from jumping up which would happen if you just take the fruit by itself. So an easy thing is an apple with nut butter um, or pears with nut butter or a handful of nuts and um, a handful of berries. Or if you're eating meat, you could have um, a piece of pastured chicken and you know some celery sticks or carrot sticks or um, a pear, you know, that kind of thing. But you always want to pair those together. That's great. Thank you. Those are great tips. Uh, the other big area that gets concerning for me are these fad-type diets that come in vogue, and uh, yeah. people feel great. I have great energy. now. Right now, the keto diet is big, and everyone's losing weight on it, and it has all sorts of implications in terms of um, based on their genetics of what, they're, what it's going to do to their lipids and how sustainable it is. My personal opinion is it's not for everyone, and it also can cause increase in cholesterol and markers of inflammation long-term for people. So I do think that people should do it with caution. But why is it that people feel so good on some of these diets? Hmm. Well, it gets back to that blood sugar, right? Um, so, of course, anytime you're making a change and you're getting away from having all the processed things and you're eating more whole foods and more vegetables, you're always going to feel better, almost always. Um, not everybody, but for the majority of people. 
But the biggest thing is that you're balancing blood sugar. We tend in the United States especially to eat so many carbs. We start the morning off with cereal or a latte that has a ton of sugar in it. And then we move on to lunch and have pizza and pasta and we finish dinner. You know what I mean? It's all a lot of carbohydrates. And so our blood sugar is all over the place. And that in and of itself is extremely stressful to the body. So now if I go to keto or paleo or Adkins or any of these diets, I'm not having so much sugar. So by default, my blood sugar is controlled. Now what will happen, as you mentioned, is that cholesterol tends to go up. So let's talk for just a second about why that is. So usually when you're having a diet that's really high in sugars, and when I say sugar, I mean any carbohydrate, because in the body they all break down to sugar. Um, So that includes starchy vegetables, that includes fruits, that includes all your grains. Um, And our brain really loves sugar. When you think about it, if you are down and out, you want some chocolate, it's because it's going to release all of these feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters in the brain, and all of a sudden you feel good again, right? You're happy. So our brain loves that sugar, but it doesn't have a good regulator to tell it when it's had too much. So what happens is if we get a lot of sugar in the bloodstream, the brain will start kind of freaking out. And then we feel overly anxious, we sometimes get depressed, we don't think as well, we're moody, the list goes on. Um, We see that in kids, and usually you'll see those kids running around and their body's trying to get it out of their bloodstream, but as adults we've been taught not to run all over the place every time we feel a little bit sugary. Um, So what happens is the body tries to protect itself and get that sugar out of the bloodstream. Well, it starts knocking at the doors of the cells and saying, hey, can you get some of this sugar out? And they're like, I don't need it right now, so back off. So then the pancreas is releasing more insulin and knocking harder, and they're pushing it back again and saying, you're really annoying, go away. So we had to figure out what to do with it. So the liver kicks in, and basically what happens is it starts converting it from sugar to fat and pushing it into adipose tissue, which is that fat around your belly, which is why we see beer bellies, for example, because beer is really high in carbs. Um, And most diabetics tend to have excess weight around that waistline. So it's a really expensive physiological process to push sugar into fat and store it. And the body doesn't want to um, recall it quickly if it needs it. So we'll have a bunch of cravings. And so now if I take that and kind of go backwards. Why does keto make me feel better? It's because I just stopped all that crazy nonsense, right? However, I didn't do anything to clean up my liver. And this is to your point about sometimes that your lipids are going to go up. You can almost always guarantee if your sugar metabolism has been off that you're going to see a high lipid panel and it's going to be all out of whack. And if you jump right over to keto and try to switch from being a sugar burner to being a fat burner, you haven't done the work yet to enable your liver and your pancreas to respond properly. So sometimes you'll get what they call that keto flu Um, and people will feel really awful, and they'll have all kinds of issues, and it takes a few weeks for them to get past that. But if they had gone a different direction and slowly moved over and allowed their body time to adjust, they wouldn't get that keto flu most of the time. And then once we get the body adjusted, we can get those lipid panels back in line, but we have to do that work, and it takes time. Yeah, so the bottom line is, you know, weight loss isn't always a sign of health. 
Uh, it's really important not to do the fad programs, try to stay in balance, try to get a balance of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats that are that are very personalized mm-hmm. to you. For example, people who have cardiovascular risk should really minimize their fats. Uh, but, you know, there, there's, there's absolutely a role for some through seeds and nuts, in my opinion. Uh, but also that it's important to monitor your labs when you do these diets and just not real, just not kind of go on the fact that you're losing weight. Sometimes that is not often mm-hmm. healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one area that I think has potential to be very, very good for health, but not long term, is juicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is juicing not healthy for some, and why isn't it great for long term? Okay, so um, juicing. <laughs> The, the beneficial things about it is that you're getting a lot of phytonutrients. You know, you're using a lot of veggies, and so you're getting all the colors of the rainbow most of the time. The problem is nobody really likes to have a broccoli, uh, celery juice, right? That's just not the tastiest thing. So we tend to add a bunch of fruits and stuff in there, apples and pears and bananas and all these different things. And inevitably what we wind up with is a really high sugar juice so that it's palatable and if you're taking all of that sugar in but you've just juiced out all of the fiber to slow that from spiking you might as well have had a latte right because it's just a ton of sugar Um, so the intent of juicing is actually to get more of those vegetables in and have your body pick up a lot of nutrients really quickly especially if you have impaired digestion but not make it sweet right? Because we're trying to actually boost the immune system, not drag it down. So the intent is really good, but sometimes people go to it and they don't realize that they're harming themselves by over-sugaring themselves, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do it, then you need to actually work with a practitioner, I think. Um, And you never want to do it long term because remember all that first discussion we had about using your senses and chewing and all of the things on your tongue actually informing the rest of the body what to do with your food, that's important. And if you're getting all of your things in a liquid diet, which sometimes people need, uh, but not long-term, you're not using all of those senses and everything's kind of getting uh, lazy and uninformed. So right. I just don't think it's a good long-term thing. So the importance is that you know these good foods like like the fruits that you can put in a juice are it strips the fiber from right. food so that it's not the whole food again so mm-hmm. you want to add back fiber at some point yeah. but also uh checking things long term making sure that your sugar levels are okay your insulin levels are okay your triglycerides are okay when you keep juicing mm-hmm. check your markers of inflammation see if this is the right program for you but probably not do anything longer than a few weeks before you get things evaluated right. uh, but juicing does allow you to get the nutrients in if your gut is very unhealthy yeah so it has a major role Absolutely. just like everything else and i think we come back to the same point every time things should be personalized Nutrition should be personalized. Your health should be personalized. So work with practitioners that can help you guide you because every diet is not going to be good for everyone. Right. Um, and I think it is also remember to is good to remember that it takes time to get your body back in balance. So be patient and also listen to cues from your body. Thank you, Cheryl, for joining us on this uh, very important discussion. I think it's, uh, again, 70 to 80% of all medical problems are dealing with the fact that It's poor nutrition, inadequate nutrition, or being on the wrong food plan for that person. Mm -hmm. So it is important to personalize it. Thank you so much for having me. 